When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to USA Football's Coach and Coordinator Podcast, where top football coaches from around the country share their stories, philosophies, concepts, and strategies to help you get better on and off the field. Now, here's your host, Keith Grabowski. Hey, coaches, before we get going today, I just wanted to thank you for all you've been doing to support this podcast, and we have an incredible lineup coming up here we have just about every major college conference represented. We have a ton of FBS coaches, Division II coaches, Division Three coaches, some great high school football coaches coming on the podcast to share with you and help you grow professionally during this time. I really appreciate all of you asking your questions on Twitter. Please follow me at Coach K Grabowski for our daily updates on our guests and your opportunity to ask questions. We will read them on the show and attribute those to you. So please contribute to the show as much as you can. Our football development model, which is something we've rolled out here at USA Football, and this is really for you to be able to help your youth football programs develop. It's about a long-term athlete development plan, something that comes off of the American development model, which is something that the USOC has put together. The idea is that we're able to teach skills in a progression starting at the youngest ages. We're also looking at the different game types we have, whether that's flag, which is non-contact, limited contact games like padded flag or tackle bar and full contact and the right progressions for contact teaching there as well. Be sure to check out all we do at footballdevelopment.com and check out what we're doing with the FDM, the football development model at usafootball.com backslash FDM. Welcome to the Coaching Coordinator Podcast. I'm joined today by the former director of operations for the XFL, Sam Schwartzstein. Sam, it's great to have you here, and uh, I'm excited to talk about innovation, really, and the approach you guys had to the XFL, which I think uh, a lot of us who are watching it are disappointed that it, it went away, but you know, we're in some strange times here, and we'll see what the future holds, but I think you guys did an incredible job. Thank you. It means a lot. You know, it was for football fans. My goal when I took the job was to push the game forward. I think we had, but there's a lot left on the table. But I'm one of 17 million people out of a job right now, so it's not – the grand scheme of things, it's not too big of a deal. <laughs> right. Well, talk to us a little bit about how you got to that job. I know you played at Stanford, but uh, you share with me a little bit at least of that progression and, and that pathway to the XFL. Yeah, so I got my – I played football at Stanford. Um, I was in the class of 2012 or 08 coming in. Uh, graduating class of 2012, played with a lot of great players. Uh, I was the center at Stanford for the Fiesta Bowl and the Rose Bowl teams. Was able to get my master's while there, focused in media studies, but was focused on virtual reality. So always had a tech background of wanting to get into tech. Worked in Silicon Valley after school. I got cut by the Chargers and was kind of done with football. Worked in Silicon Valley for years, um, building products for a company called Chegg, which a lot of you know, college coaches, your students probably are using Chegg to help on their homework help. I helped build out a lot of those different aspects there. Was really um, focused on 
building unique projects, solving problems quickly with testing. So that was a big aspect. Now, when Oliver Luck took this job as the commissioner, I'd known him from playing with Andrew, being close friends with him, being able to go to games in Indianapolis with Andrew. And he said, I want you to provide the same mindset you do in product development for um, Silicon Valley as you do for football. So let's bring that over. Let's not just throw things on the wall and expect them to work. Let's not just have a mindset, but, you know, use what the principles are, which is build, test, repeat. So build, talk to experts, get their ideas, get what they want, talk about what problems are really actually trying to solve for, have data to back all of it up, and then ultimately test in the field. Our principles were we needed to test twice, have a rule test positively twice live before we ever put it into the game. And so being principled, having mindset, um, learning to block out the noise, learning to block out fear, which a lot of football, as you go, coach know, there's fear, what, what, what might they do, and focus more on what is actually, you know, my job was not to speculate on what might happen. My job was to go out there and test it and make sure I understood it. And boy, there's a lot of areas I, I want to talk about here because this is, you know, an innovative approach to the game and how you were looking at it. And you started to to share with me a little bit before we got going about looking at blitzing, right? And the success rate compared to the NFL and what you were able to do in that regard. Kind of a different approach as we've seen in previous spring league with the AAF, the idea of restriction of blitzing, where you guys took a different approach to that. Yeah. And so I think for me, you know, always focus. What, what makes life easier for me is know who am I serving. And I was serving the fan the entire time right? This was a game for fans. This was a game for fans. Players and coaches were then benefited in that order from what our rule changes were. And fans want to see scoring. Fans want to see big plays. And our coaches and coaches strategically in the past have always been concerned about how do I pick up blitz? We were talking before. Blitz pickup period is the longest period in practice. You spend the most time on it. So if I don't have to spend time on it, I can be fine. If I know I can have a double team at every defensive lineman, I don't have to have an insecurity about how my guys are able to protect or where my weak link is. But for us, we wanted to maximize big plays and maximize, you know, what teams taking advantage of the blitz and showing that your fear is not as big a problem. We understand there's a problem, but let's go out and solve it in different ways. So we solved it with coach-to-player communication, having an up-tempo game with smaller rosters so guys would get more tired, and then our RPO rules. So, you know, we made – a, your easy way to manufacture first downs with the RPO rules from college, but we kind of cleared up the language a little bit where it really is truly three yards downfield instead of one yard to three. But, you know, we gave them tools to help them there instead of focusing on. It. Now what happened was is a success rate in blitz, which is a hurry, a hit or a sack. We were 40% success rate from a blitzing perspective. When a defense blitz, they had a 40% success rate and the NFL it's 50%. So the big fear of spring football, which is how are you going to be able to protect we had a better job protecting the blitz and taking advantage of it than he did because he was a, we looked at it. When there's a blitz, you have a 16 to 70% chance of increase in a big play, 12 plus yards. There's a 70% chance or the 70% chance to score if you have a big play on that drive. All tied together, all this math tied together. Now, it all has to work together in tandem. We didn't see that every time. DC had 12 or 20 big plays against LA. And they lost 33 to, uh, to seven or something, 33 to nine, you know. So it's not always a correlation, but the teams are able to take advantage of, of blitzes in unique ways because of the tools we gave them instead of restricting them. Football is about taking advantage of bad situations. Yeah. 
So I'm interested in that. And we do have a, a big high school coach and college coach audience. How, how do we take that learning, what you guys were able to do, and that success rate? Because I think if you told anybody out there, hey, you can be 10% better at uh, either exploiting or, or stopping the blitz, they'd be very interested in that. So we don't have all of those rule accommodations, but if, if you were to think that through and say, okay, what did we learn? What's the takeaway that other people could apply in the future? What, what would that be? Communication is key. And knowing how to take advantage of situations with unique players is the best way you can solve these problems. Now, I didn't call a single play in our league, but I got to see how teams were able to use our coach to player communication, which is much like signaling in college football and high school football. Um, I played in an air raid run shoot style at South Lake Carroll in Texas, and we would do a lot of line of scrimmage checks. Now, you know, sometimes that can get overboard, but I think if you're able to utilize communication so that everyone's on the same page, that'll make you right a lot of the time and get you in the right spots to be able to take advantage of it. And also, don't be afraid of those situations. If a team likes to blitz something, do it. Get to the line of scrimmage. Let them show their hand. Use the field. Now, we did college and or we did pro hashes, um, and we bounced around idea a lot of college hashes. I like college hashes because when you're in trips, they have to show you what the hell's going on. Right. Um, versus in the NFL, when you're, it doesn't matter. But also, Ed Reed didn't play in the XFL. Ed Reed can't top the corner to the bound, or, uh, boundary and still cover the deep middle. Um, you know, we didn't have that safety. Kenny Robinson, maybe, but we didn't ha really have that. So I would say just utilize communication as much as you can. Practice it nonstop and make sure your center knows what the heck's going on. Make it simple. I think the most successful team picking up the blitz in our league was Houston. I think they're the first pro team in maybe 30 years that dropped a center in pass protection. They did not use traditional slide most of the time. You know, I hadn't seen that since high school. But they said, let's go big on big. Let's keep it simple. We, have a, we, we drafted a center pretty high. Let's have him dual read and get out of there. Yeah. You know, keep it simple for them. Yeah, really cool. And I know we're going to talk a lot of, uh, about a lot of the successful things that have happened there. But keeping along these lines, kind of the, the game playing stuff and those kind of uh, things you've, you've learned about through, you know, all the things that you put in place, other things that coaches would be interested in that, maybe knowledge you guys have gained from playing the game this way might help them much like, you know, talking about communication with pass pro. So for our rule changes, I'll, I'll, I'll knock out some of the stuff that we did well with our kickoff. And I hope our kickoff is used at the, at the college and the high school level at some point, the Citadel coach Thompson, he was able to use it. Um, and he really liked it. It looks a little foreign at the start, but it ends up being pretty, it ends up being a lot of like a drill would be when you have guys not running up. Um, so our kickoff, we saw a 90% return rate. Um, we had zero concussions, whereas the NFL um, is about a 30% return rate. Um, we had the tiered extra point, which is a one-point play from the two, a two-point play from the five, and a three-point play from the ten. And what we saw, it was a short time period, but in the, in the goal-to-go situations, we expected it to be 50% score rate from the two, 30% score rate from the five, and a 20% score rate from the ten. No, I have to say that correctly. We were a 40% score rate from the three-point play. But that was largely due to there's often three-point plays taking place from the five because we had a half the distance to the goal penalty, defensive penalty rule. So the score rate went up. So what we saw was in those situations, don't be afraid to put the defense in a disadvantageous position. 
There's expecting passes, a 95% pass rate in those situations. So don't be afraid to run the quarterback. Quarterback runs were the number one way to score on a three-point play in our league. Hmm. Was is don't be afraid to put them in a position where they might get a penalty. And so our teams were learning these things of saying, okay, one point play is safe in my mind, but it was actually scoring at a lower rate. It was about a 40% score rate from the two in our game when it should have been at a 50%. But teams were not scheming it correctly. They're not mindset was correctly. But also, no, you have situations that in this moment, you might get to another shot at it. Put them in a position that make it a penalty. Put that in that. That's why I like the goal line fade sometimes is, hey, they might get a penalty on that. Right. Don't be afraid to take advantage of what a, what a referee needs to see. If you have a guy that's able to take advantage of those situations, because that will help you over time. You know, we did a study on third, third, uh, third down conversions by penalty, and we wanted to see how do these affect the games. And there are games in the NFL that are won strictly off of teams leveraging penalties on third down. Really interesting stuff. I want to go back to that kickoff for a little bit. And when I look at what's happening around the country, I love the kickoff. I think it's a beautiful play. I think we have a mindset of the old style kickoff, which was very much still like the flying wedge that got outlawed by Teddy Roosevelt. But when you look at, you know, at the highest level, and I know these guys are running faster. I mean, there's, there's a lot of finesse, I guess, that goes into it. It is not run down and be a battering ram. Like, you need to get yourself in the right position. And having coached it at the college level, you know, the timing of it was critical. But I haven't seen the adaptation across the board with, with everybody yet. I know we've outlawed the wedges and too mad wedges at some levels. But I also see that at the lower sub-varsity levels at the high schools, that they can elect to not have a kickoff. And, and for me, even if you maintained the traditional kickoff, let's say at the varsity level, I think this is a really good developmental way to keep that phase of the game to, at, at the very least, start developing those kinds of skills in your sub-varsity levels. I don't know that you should include it at the youth level. I would make arguments probably against kickoffs then, but I think this is a really innovative way, at least developmentally, but maybe it is the future as well. Yeah, I think, you know, from our rules process was, as the rules guy, I did not want to make new rules. I was not, I, I love the game of football. I mean, the game that I played, I, I had, you know, 45 plays on offense when I was at Stanford. We ran the ball, drain clock. Pep Hamilton wasn't calling plays till 15 seconds left, and we had to kill an alert and a ripcord on every play. You know, so... I played a slow style game. That's not what the fans wanted. But there's some things about rules where what can a coach adapt to? And what do you have to make a new rule because they'll never adapt? And that was our focus. And kickoff was one where you could never inherently take out the risk of a 35-yard run-up. Nothing we did. A team, a team was going to try and battering ram. I know you talk about finesse, but some team was going to ruin it for everybody else. Right. And so – what we did was we created the new kickoff to kind of say, hey, there's no chance for a 35-yard collision now, right, where someone doesn't know it's coming. The returner might – or a coverage guy might beat a returner clean, blocker clean, but the returner still can see it coming, right? We've now eliminated that part of the game. And we believe that the only reason why we start 10 yards apart before the kickoff and then sprint 35 yards is because of the surprise onside kick, right? 
Because if you watch the clip, when the ball's caught, they line up exactly where we put our players. That's how we got it. We watched kickoff and paused the film when the ball was caught, and they end up at the 35 and 30 facing each other. So we looked at onside kicks. Okay, it's 1% of kickoffs. Now let's go, when you line up an onside kick and it's this known onside kick situation, we're in a completely different formation. You're not in the formation where it's five across at the front. It's, it is a big change. So now let's look at surprise onside. It's 1% of onside kicks. It's got a 60% recovery rate. It's probably the most exciting play in football. But we never see it. So the reason why we start 10 yards apart, sprint 35 yards, and bash our brains in together is because of a 1% of a 1% of a play. That's why we eliminated it, right? And that's really the only thing we eliminated from the game. Yeah, it's a little bit different from a kickoff perspective of it being you know, seen differently. But I think this is, if we're playing football in 30 years, this is the kickoff that we're going to have to use because some coaches and some play styles, you can never account for the game that we have. Um, and I think what, you, what you've said, like with Teddy Roosevelt, I looked at a lot of what Walter Camp did when he was changing rules every week in the game. And what Teddy Roosevelt did was introduce the forward pass because the game got so dangerous when it was just running. And he only did that because he, the front page of the newspaper had his son being carted off the field. Mm-hmm. Right? So the reasons why we made changes to the rules is, okay, now the forward pass is one of the most dangerous plays. There's quarterback protections. There's over-the-middle protections, defenseless players. Let's start figuring out how we can make that next evolution to make the game a little bit safer. We were looking at those things or different things that we were trying to figure out. You know, there's a lot of things that we're still working on. I think the kickoff is a shining example, though, of showing we need to evolve. We need to change something, keep the essence of the game in it. But there needs to be an evolution moment, much like Teddy Roosevelt when he introduced the forward pass. With the onside kick, and and I apologize because I'm getting my spring leads crossed up. What was the mechanism or was there a mechanism to be able to get the ball back? Yeah, so there was um, an election system. So before every kickoff, you had to tell the official what you were doing. Am I kicking it deep, which is the kickoff that you saw mostly, or am I onside kicking? And we had traditional onside kick rules. Um, We had a five-yard run-up, which I think college football still has. The NFL starts you one yard off the ball. But we had the five-yard run-up with no overload. So with those rules, we expected about a 9% recovery rate, which is very similar to the fourth and twenty the fourth and 12 um, situation, we looked at that. Um, we also looked at the Shiano rule for our kickoff, which is just a punt situation. So you have a surprise element in there. But what was what happened was is the AF had a, a spring game, or an not spring game, an uh, exhibition game. And a team had a 12-yard drive or 12-play drive to get down to the line's uh, score. They had to go for two. So the O-line's still playing full-speed football, not you know the half-speed kind of that you have the guys take plays off on kickoff. Or field goal. I know coaches are going to be mad, but guess what? We, <laughs> us fat guys, that was a playoff kind of. And then they had to go straight to an onside play and then straight to another drive. So you now you have 320-pound linemen on the field for 25 straight plays. And that was a safety hazard. That's why I believe you shouldn't do the 4th and 12 or 4th and 15 onside kick attempt because those guys need to get off the field. They need to get a break. They need to get water because it's too big for them without a, without a, a playoff or a, a, they're in between the lines for too long. Right. That was our main reason for not doing that. We thought the election for the onside and removing the surprise element, which it really, you can still do a surprise. You can kick it to either side of the field. There was traditional onside kick rules, but we thought 
that would be better than just saying we're going to go with this fourth and 12. Yeah. With staying in the kicking game, your rules for fourth down the punt, uh, definitely some changes there. You know, I know we've had Kevin Kelly on here before who, who never punts. So, you know, he helped come up with my rules for punt. <laughs> I was going to ask if, if he was involved, but talk to us about those and what you saw in, in the fourth downs. I think that's a, there's a lot to learn from that as well. All right. So this is one of the more fun ones. This is actually the one where we didn't hit my KPI. So this is the only, only KPI, which is for those out there, that's a key performance indicator. It's our goals, right? Um, preseason, we wanted to say 80% of our punts were returned. We were at 60%, um, still better than the NFL, which is 30%. So we doubled the returns you see on punting plays. Our focus was we wanted to see less punts, especially opponent territory punts. And that's what Kevin helped out with because he said the only good place to punt is the plus 40 because you have a high likelihood to pin them within the five, which is negative expected points for the other team. We didn't want that punt. That is a punt that is booed by fans. We don't want the plus territory punt. But we didn't want to – we did everything with incentives. We didn't want to ban that punt because then you get into certain situations of, well, if I move backwards behind the 50, do now I have – can I punt? So now you're incentivizing the team to move backwards on third and 13 on the, on the plus 48, you know? So there was those issues. So we just said if the ball goes into the end zone or out of bounds, so we're eliminating the coffin corner, it goes up to the plus 35. So now your risk-reward. When you're punting from the plus 40 and, and it goes into the end zone, it's a 20-yard punt or net punt. So, okay, it's not too bad, but I still gain 20 yards, two first downs for the other team. Now you're gaining five yards. So you're incentivized less to punt. So we saw a little bit of less punts there. I think we saw, I think, three less punts in plus territory than the NFL. But we didn't completely see that. Coaches were still flow charting. They were still trying to play it safe a little bit. I saw a punt from the plus 39 when they had a kicker who made a 58-yard field goal. <laughs> oh, and you got Taylor Russolito. A kid can punt it. Why would you not even kick the field goal? That was one that we saw, but another one was restrict the players from when they can release off the line of scrimmage. And so we tried the five-yard halo three separate times that CFL has, but they have a bunch of rules that coincide with it. Um, the CFL game doesn't make a lot of sense, but all of it is tied together and it does make sense. It is a good game at the end of the day, but it's just not American football. So they have what's called the rouge, which is if you kick a ball into the end zone, you get a punt, uh, a single point. If you – there's no fair catch. It's a five-yard hitter by the returner. But the, and the punter or anyone who lines up behind the punter is on sides. I'm doing air quotes for everybody. Uh, he they're, – they're able – it's a live ball for them. So they can go pick up the ball. So that's what incentivizes the returner to pick the ball. We don't want that. No one's ever seen a guy line up behind the punter in American football. So we don't want to introduce a new rule like that. Remember, we don't want to risk our punters running down there and getting hurt. The second – or the last thing was there were so many penalties. So what we said is, what are we actually trying to solve for? And every problem, everything that we do, we always ask, what problem are we trying to solve for? We want to make it safer for the returner to catch the ball so he's less likely to fair catch it and more likely to get a big return. So we restricted all players from leaving the line of scrimmage until a ball was kicked. College, it's uh, players can leave when the ball snapped. In the NFL, only the end man line of scrimmage off to the gunner can leave when the ball is uh, snapped. Everyone else wait till the ball is kicked. We said, let's wait till the ball is kicked. So we charted every punt in the NFL, see what the average distance was between the returner and the uh, coverage team. And it was about four yards, five yards. Our game was 11 yards. So that's why we didn't see as many fair catches in our game because there was more distance for the returner to make, make a decision. So it was safer for that player. 
It actually ended up having more distance between the player and the returner, uh, the returner and the coverage team, the five-yard halo would, because we're not asking that player to do something unnatural, which is sprint and then slow down. Right. That's a big problem with the five-yard halo. What we asked our players to do is hold your water at the beginning, do a little mirror drill at the, at the line of scrimmage. Coach, you can bring that guy in motion, you know, and, and take him across the formation, and then you can release. And it really was a helpful play for us, and we think it was safer. It also eliminated the need that the shield punt, which we think is an unsafe play in college football. You're asking guys to stand still and take a guy running full speed into them, it's much like the wedge. Not as much distance, not the 35 yards that you get on kickoff, but that was a big deal for us was to eliminate the shield punt as well. The gameplay, you guys created probably uh... – a bit of a more exciting game because there wasn't the stoppage in between. Average time was under three hours for an XFL game. A 25 second clock between plays, average of about 22 seconds. Talk to us about just thinking about those things, and and again, knowing that hey, we're right now working on you know federation rules in high school, and you know college has their rules, NFL has their rules, but some of the takeaways from that. Yeah, that was my baby. That was one of my big you know, things that it was going to be really hard to solve for because we did hire Pep Hamilton and we did hire traditional West Coast coaches. And how do I get them to move at an up-tempo pace, the college pace, um, or, or the air raid or the run and shoot where, you know, some you got, I watched film, UCF was running a play every four seconds. That's the fastest I've ever seen a team run. Um, you can't sub, right? And so you have to do some unique things. But we looked at all game data from the NFL and tracked what's the fastest they can go and what's the, what is the average time. And we actually, uh, between plays, and they're 31 seconds. But that doesn't tell you enough information. We wanted to know how long does it take to call the play, execute the huddle, and execute the line of scrimmage. And working our way backwards is the amount of things is the hardest part to eliminate. So if Aaron Rodgers takes eight seconds of line of scrimmage to call a play, our guy's going to take at least eight seconds right, to read the defense, to understand what's going on. So we can't eliminate that. The huddle we can eliminate. We do not need to run everyone in and out of the huddle if we're able to communicate to every player. So we put uh, headsets in every offensive player's, uh, skill position player's helmet because those players are the ones that move. We at one time had it in all players' helmets, but the five linemen, they never sub really, and they're always in the same spot on the field. They're always next to the quarterback. So they don't need to get that extra information. It was a cost-saving measure. Uh, for us and they didn't need to actually get that to speed the game up then when all those skill pigeon players have those headsets in they get the information now we know that you can use signals and give them all the same information well between stealing signals and not looking like professional football because you don't see that in professional in the nfl we invested in coach to player communication signaling 31 and having them look at a wristband takes them about the same amount of time as hearing in your head helmet but we want to do something unique, be able to give something to our fans that was a more up-tempo, um, and that, that access was actually exciting for fans to have, that, that communication. So that was a big one. And so what we did is by eliminating the four seconds it takes to operate a huddle, boom, we can take that out. Then now we're telling our coaches, you have to call the play faster and get it in, and you have to know when to sub. And by having them have these rules, Coach Hamilton, Mark Tresman had these rules in their head starting February – of 2019. So they knew once they got hired on, I'm going to have to change. So two jet scat is just called odd or, or even for Pep Hamilton now, right? 
it, you can eliminate some verbiage for the quarterback to be able to communicate. Like there was things that they had terminology-wise they could have. So when we got this play clock, we first ever tested was a 25-second hard play clock, end of the previous play, much like college football in the NFL's 40-second play clock. And we only had six delay games and 86 plays with our teams in Mississippi. Both run up-tempo. We tested with Mississippi Gulf Coast Community College, great people there, and Pearl River Community College, great people there. And they were able to run up-tempo. But I had to then give more time for our coaches. So we had a, a ball spotting official. We now started the play clock on the ball spot. By having a single official, I could control that amount of time. So we tested five seconds to spot the ball, 10 seconds to spot the ball, ended up on the seven seconds to spot the ball. Now, if you understand originally, 31 seconds is the average play time in the NFL. We had a 32-second play clock. So God forbid, if we're moving at a slower pace, if we're moving at the pace that the NFL is, we still have enough time to execute our play. And so it was that mindset that, now what do we do? Now, if I went to next year, Next year, we were going to have a 20-second play clock that started on ball spot because I got my coaches to understand how fast they go. But I was still six plays less than I wanted to be or fewer than I wanted to be than the NFL because the only way to account for good scoring is to have as many plays because you don't know when the scoring play is going to come, so have more plays. Chip Kelly's mindset, just keep running plays and you are going to score. Don't know when it's coming, just have more plays. So – that was kind of our mindset of how do we get to the same number of plays in the NFL so we can assume we'll have the same amount of scoring. So a, a big part of that, just hearing the, the takeaway for our coaches out there is finding a way to condense, to cut down to uh, how much verbiage do you really need as you set up your structure. That's a big part of it, right? So even right. if you are hand signaling, that would be a big part being able to take those kinds of things out. Absolutely. And just being multiple, I think having multiple cards for the game and you're able to call the same numbers. So you don't have to repeat it, but like, why not change wristband cards every series? Mm -hmm. There's different ways that you can do it to where you can use the same signal if you're using certain numbers, but you can signal it differently um, ways to cut down that, that timing. And, And from when I played center, people always say, well, center is the hardest position in the offensive line. You have to know so much. To me, it was the easiest. I learned half the playbook because the right plays and left plays are the exact same for me. And I do all my thinking the week before. I know they're going to play a 25 under. They can run these blitzes out of it. I already have that ingrained in me. So I'm flow charting once I get onto the field, right? So how can you leverage this week of preparation to get to the game to limit all of your thinking and the hard things that take place on game day? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Looking at uh, another one, the meaningless play, right? Definitely down. NFL being 7%, you guys were at 2.7%. Talk to us about that thought process, because I'm sure it's not something that happened by accident, because as we're hearing, all this is very intentional and uh, well thought out and researched. Yeah, so meaningless plays, I have to define that for you. That's a play where... This is going to get scientific, but I'm not that scientific. Ballistic movement of the ball where there's no action on it. So the ball moved. And so like a kickoff that goes out of the back of the end zone every time. That's a meaningless play. Why did we not just start the ball at the 25? Well, for our reasons is because the closer you start to the goal line, the half opportunity to have a, a touchdown return, that's increases scoring. You'll see, you know, that's always something that we talked about. Um, 
but a punt where it's a fair catch or goes out of bounds or is a touchback. That's a meaningless play. An incompletion is not a meaningless play. Action took place on that. So we were really looking at touchbacks, uh, extra points that were converted at a 94% conversion rate. NFL had a 99% conversion rate on their single point extra point. They moved it back to the 15. They had a four, uh, 4% uh, or 5% decrease. So it became a 94%. I don't know how many people get pats on the back for a 5% increase in their job, right? So um, that's a play that was uh, our fans in qualitative research told us that that's a piss break for a last of a better word. I can go to the bathroom. I don't have to watch that play. And so that's what those plays. So we eliminated all those plays where there was like a 90 plus percent chance of, of something not happening and eliminated those. So meaningless plays for our game were touchbacks still on, on you know, on returns, kick returns and touch and uh, fair catches. And then we eliminated the entire meaningless play of extra points. The whole process I think you guys use, and it does remind me a lot of, of Kevin Kelly, right? And, and how he's come up with his out of the box type of thinking. Uh, the analytics he uses, the way that he operates in his program. And he's made it distinctly Kevin Kelly because I know people have tried to copy him and probably bigger than anything didn't ingrain that in their culture for people to understand it. But, you know, you guys definitely were building a lot of this into your culture. So just thinking about this, though, the big takeaway from the XFL and, you know, at, at least right now, not, not a plan for the future. But what can we learn from this? as coaches, I guess, within our own small programs, but I think in the bigger picture of, of football as a whole. A book that resonated with me incredibly and a lot of my mindset about how we approach this game was by Doug Farrar called The Genius of Desperation. I recommend every coach read it. It's about how each team, each big exciting change in football strategy came because they had a problem. The West Coast offense was invented because Bill Walsh quarterback in Cincinnati hurt his shoulder. He couldn't throw deep, so they had to find a way to integrate every player into the offense. Approach hard problems as an opportunity for greatness. If a team is doing something that you cannot beat, find something around it. We used to call it the Kobayashi Maru problem in, <laughs> from Star Trek. Yep. You know, he, couldn't beat, he couldn't beat the test, so he changed the test. That's how you have to approach it. Find that issue. And that's what, to me, makes it so beautiful, the game, right? You'll see, when I watch Kansas City Chiefs play, I don't see the same types of things that I they, when you watch the, the Niners play. In that game, the Niners are concepts built on top of each other. You, you're going to see some in the first quarter so that you see some in the thir second quarter and third quarter. Kyle Shannon has built in his in-game adjustments from the previous week. I don't see concepts that much in the Chiefs. They have plays that are specific that are going to beat you, much like Kevin Kelly. He's going to have a play drawn up for a specific situation that will beat you on that time. He's going to leverage talent in that situation. Both these teams who have an amazing talent, they are able to do solve things in completely different ways, but use what issues that might come up and they approach those problems with a savvy. Do not get stuck in your ways. Do not be, well, this is my concept. This is what I do. And this is how I leverage it. No, you will have to change. The game changes every single week. Embrace that opportunity to do something big. That's how we approached it. The, the last one that you list as an accomplishment in, in the LinkedIn article that actually brought me to is the giant beer snake. Now, mm -hmm. doesn't apply to, to many of us as coaches, but I think it's interesting enough to talk about here. 
Vince told us what's our asked us what's our job, and you know I'm trying to say let's play great football, and I, you can tell by now I'm like here are the numbers to define. He goes no, it's to have fun. This thing's going to be fun. Fans are going to have fun. Let them have fun. I got yelled at for we threw a flag on a guy for taking his helmet off when he was celebrating. Well, you know it's dangerous. It was his third time doing it, and so we gave him two warnings, and Cam Phillips had his hat trick, so he kept taking his helmet off. But it's about having fun, and that's what the beer snake was all about, was our fans are just as much rookies as everyone else is. We're all rookies here year one, and the fans are able to make up their own traditions and do not stifle them, right? Do not close them down. Uh, you know, we, week one, we didn't have cups. It became a health and safety issue, right? We need to have cups because you can't – it's a risk of having the can thrown in. So then we got cups, and that's when they came up with the beer snake. Now, they're done other places, but you have security coming and take it down. No, the fans are as much part of this game as we are. In a, you've never been to a, football, a professional football game in a stadium like Audi Field. You're right on top of the team. There's 16,000 people, but it feels like there's 100,000 there. And it was a beautiful moment to be a part of. Because the fans made it up and the league embraced it, which you don't get other places. Very cool. I love all that you guys did. I love the innovative approach. I do think, as we talked about through this podcast, definitely a lot of takeaways from us who still are in the traditional rules, but a lot to learn from what you guys did. And I appreciate you coming on this podcast and sharing that with us. Awesome. I do have to ask, though, I still have my product development mindset on I still hope that these rules are able to be continued out at the higher levels um what what rule was your favorite that you saw what was your biggest takeaway that you saw it could be the communication on tv what was something that you were passionate about well I I did really like the kickoff rule and as I said as much as I love the traditional kickoff it, it probably would take me some some time to get over that, but the idea of just eliminating that and placing the ball on the 35 or whatever it might be seemed very grade schoolish to see that, in, you know, in, in that other spring league. So I really enjoyed that and I thought it was innovative. Um, I did start to see as the weeks went on a little bit, uh, your special teams coordinator started scheming those a little bit, which I think, you know, there would be some, some opportunity for innovation there. So I, I liked that part. That was probably my favorite part of it. Though yeah, I, had, I love the other things too. I did like the, the, the ability to, uh, to go for one, two, or three as well. What was awesome was is we, we, we tried everything in, in, tra- in, in, in testing because I saw it as a big, giant offensive line play, right, run play. And so my favorite was inside zone, double team the guy on the hash, the number four, and have a press to cut back. I, I would have run that almost every time. But we saw cross block. Yep. We trap we saw reverse we saw a lot of different things and we had done all that in preseason so that we could so our coaches could have that to map off of right because they're rookies with this too and uh it was great to see you know everyone in the office had an opinion on what was going to happen (laughs) but no one knew what the hell was going to happen the last touchdown we had on it was a cross block and then we flash forward to the later that day and they ran about four cross blocks that got blown up, and the team started with the ball in their own 15 every time, right? So there was no solve yet for it, and that play was still evolving, which was pretty great. 
Well, I can tell you this, Sam, I would love to have you back on this podcast. Anytime you want to discuss innovation or ideas you have or things that can help us keep moving this game forward. Again, I think uh, it was a lot of fun to watch, at least from my standpoint. I know a lot of people who are, are disappointed to see that it ended. But again, you're welcome to come back anytime and talk ball with us. Awesome, man. This was super fun. I love the community. USA football is great. I love that there's such a knowledge share on the internet now about what's going on in football. You know, we're such a secretive sport. Um, we kind of opened that up a little bit at the XFL to kind of get rid of the secrets because it really is a game that changes week to week. So thanks so much. Coaches, again, want to remind you of what we're doing with the football development model. Please push this down to your youth coaches. I think this is a great way for you to get some organization and structure beyond what you've already done. Check it out. All of our, our program development for youth football at fdm.usafootball.com. Again, check out our systems for blocking, tackling, and defeating blocks at footballdevelopment.com. If you register with your email, you get your choice of three free videos. There's some great things in there. I think things that as you get going again, can get into the summer and maybe make up on some things that you might have lost if you had a spring ball, if you had time here in the spring to work on football. Some great drills for all those phases of contact. If you're enjoying the podcast, please have it over to iTunes or your platform and give us a five-star rate. If you have a minute, write a review. We really appreciate it, and we will read your review on our highlight show that we do at the end of the week. Thanks for listening to USA Football's Coach and Coordinator Podcast. For more resources, visit the Coach Performance Center at usafootball.com.